This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 178. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Super excited you're here today. Today on the show, I have Al Williamson. And what I love about Al, not only has he quit his job, but he quit his job with only a single apartment building that was essentially like Class D. And through that trial and tribulation, he figured out a short-term rental strategy, but it's not an Airbnb type strategy. It's actually an extended stray strategy. And this is quite a bit different because you're not renting out for one, two, three, four nights. You are renting out 30 days plus and you get around all of the short-term stay legislation and all the taxes because now standard landlord tenant laws apply and he can able to quadruple the income of his eight unit in this way. So I've kind of grilled him a little bit on on how to do this, how to find the real estate, what strategy to apply, and who his customer is, how he finds those. And it's really fascinating. So it's uh, so fascinating, in fact, that we're going to have uh, some conversation with our property managers, maybe taking a few of our units, furnishing them, and then trying this time of extended stay strategy. So really, really interesting. So make sure you listen to this uh, episode. Also, uh, say hi to me on social media. We have uh, lots of conversations going on in both Instagram and Facebook. I'm Instagram, I am at the Michael Blanc is the handle. And you know what I love to see? This is hysterical is, you know, give me a snapshot of where you are right now listening to this podcast, as long as you're not driving. Okay, so don't give me the selfie, you know, grinning as you're driving along. Don't do that. But just give me a snapshot and and, and same thing on Facebook. We're also on Facebook and just tag me on that saying, hey, Michael, here's where I am right now. I always love to see that. All right. So really excited here to drill down with Al Williamson on this extended stay strategy applied to multifamily. Let's get right in the show. Here we go. Al, welcome to the show today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, so your story is outrageous because you (laughs) claim that you quit your job after doing only an eight-unit apartment building deal, and I can't wait to dig into that. So let's get in there. I mean, let's go get right into it. How is it possible that with an eight-unit deal, you're able to quit your job? So the deal is, of course, you have to buy it right. So you you start off low. So I started off on a in a inner city neighborhood. And then I worked on the neighborhood to kind of um, reposition it to it's a safe neighborhood. And then I added on, have you heard of payday rent schedules? I you know, not. Jeffrey Taylor, Mr. Lander talks about is you click half your rent payment every two weeks mm. and you end up at the end of the year with an extra month of rent. Okay. So you do it every two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Makes yeah. sense. So I did that and I started um, renting bicycles at the time. So I collected some extra rent there and I um, got people to coordinate with their internet. So I created an internet association and I was able to cut everyone's internet costs by half and collect some of that benefit myself. So I was able to make some extra money there. And then I got to the point, my first milestone was being able to cover my entire mortgage with side income or ancillary income. So I accomplished that in 2015, wrote this long detailed article on bigger pockets and, and wrote a whole book on it, all the ways I came up with. And then from there, I realized that short-term rentals was the platform that allowed me to get more ancillary income out of the property. So I started focusing on that and then optimizing that got me to 
just doing month, month and longer stays, so doing extended stays. So I drilled down on that whole world that most Airbnb people don't go to. They like to stay 30 days and less or 28 days and less. And, and I like the corporate housing business traveler on extended stay. That's really my sweet spot. So like we were talking about before we interviewed that I'm able to get a lot more out of a small piece of property. Yeah, that's, you're kind of, uh, you're changing the use of a piece of property. And uh, similar, when I interviewed Tim Hubbard a little while ago, last year and a half ago, he takes an apartment building and applies a different business model to it. And that's kind of what you're doing as well. So I want to drill down uh, on that long corporate, long-term stay thing. But before we do, how did you get started with real estate? Did you do anything before that eight unit? And why did you even start real estate investing? And what were you doing before that eight unit? Well, before that, I, w- I was a civil engineer. I was had like a master's degree. I was doing a regular consulting thing. And I'm like, well, this is great, but this is no fun for an entrepreneur to be in doing this regular thing. And I was getting ready to get married in 96. And a fellow told me, why don't you consider a duplex instead of a regular house? So we did that. I went to the library, read all, everything I could about uh, multifamilies and, and real estate. And we ended up having a very small wedding and buying a three-unit building at the same time. <laughs> That's cool. So instead of buying a house or a townhouse, you convinced your wife that buying a tri, tri you know, a multi small multi unit renting out the other ones was a good idea. Yep, yep. And then I had to do even more talking to squeeze her into the smallest unit. <laughs> so you can rent out the bigger ones. That's, That's pretty it. cool. Were you able to cover your your mortgage from that? Did you have a little left over or how did that work? Almost. The way we bought it, we it significantly defrayed our costs. I think we were like $400 out of pocket per month covering everything. Nice. So that was good. But the thing I was I noticed doing that is that if I wanted to maintain the property, that I was losing all my profits, you know, because if I wanted to keep it up and I was doing work myself, it was very good, but it wasn't, it wasn't like what I had inked it on a piece of paper. You know? Yes. That, that's one of, the, one of the fundamental problems with smaller properties is you, you're going along two, three months and then some pipe bursts and you're you know yeah. out 800 bucks. You're like, ah, darn yeah. it. Yeah. So that's pretty yeah. cool. So you house hacked. And, and by the way, there's a good number of people who started that way. That's great that you're able to, to do that and you kind of get the real estate bug a little bit. And then like, did your mind start turning after that? What did you do after that? Oh yeah. After, after that, I was like, okay, I want to get a whole bunch of these things and, and keep going. And I was very meticulous, you know, I was being Mr. Engineer, and I was trying to do as much as I could myself. It just wasn't penciling out the way I was doing it. I found I was working all the time and my net was the depreciation and the wealth building was great. But the cash flow, like, for example, my wife said, well, why can't we go on vacation? And I was like, well, it's because I'm using money for my engineering job to maintain the property. So I had to admit that, and that's what started the quest of collecting ideas of additional income streams because I felt bamboozled a little bit because people don't talk about the cost of maintenance and tree roots and rotor rooters and a water leak can, and a paint job can take your whole year's profit from you if you want to maintain the property. Yeah. And that's fundamentally, like I said, the problem with single family house investing and even small multi-units. It's just that the, the income can be a little lumpy because of that exact thing. Now, at what yeah. point did you get into this eight unit? What had you done up to that point? Well, this three unit thing quadrupled on me in value. Nice. 
I caught the wind because it was in an area that was going through a neighborhood improvement effort. So that's what really took it up, allowed us, and the neighborhood got better. We were able to charge more for rents, and so everything turned around. So this said, we said, let's do this again. That's really what we do. Our goal at that time, when we got married, we like all young people, we wanted to be millionaires. Of course. On paper. So on paper, we were. And we didn't really do anything. We just caught the uptick in the market, and we thought we were smart. So we hadn't lost any money. We didn't know anything. So we, we went into another neighborhood that was going through a, an improvement effort in Sacramento, California. And we got this eight-unit place, and it was where the gangs were hanging out. This eight-unit is the headquarters. It was filled with prostitution. That laundry room, if that laundry room could talk, you know, there's a lot of things going on. And we had um, gun activity as well. So I purchased that building. That was and, the and, big you, and you and your wife thought this was a good idea to buy this particular building? Yes. Fantastic. Because we, it, the location of it, it was amazing. Oftentimes, good and bad neighborhoods are separated by just one street. Mm-hmm. And all you have to do is fix that street and you kind of move the, the border. Move the, 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 the border. Okay. So, because you, you mentioned it by the by earlier, just a few minutes ago, I yeah. fixed the neighborhood and then I, and I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. It's like, how did you fix the neighborhood, Al? You exercise leadership because everyone wants it. And especially if you're in a rental neighborhood, all the landlords want it. <laughs> they want it better. They just don't want to put in the effort. And they'll write you a check, but they don't want to be involved in it, really. They want to be passive. So I found myself where I had, uh, I had to just connect people and they will do things. If it wasn't too much effort, they'll definitely write you a check. The politicians wanted it. The police wanted it. The residents who were living there wanted it. And we had all the money. We just didn't have any leadership. So that's all I had to bring to the table. It didn't stick around long enough to make sure things happened. And leadership is simple as keeping litter off the ground mm. and calling in the street lights that are burned out and a, a neighborhood party once a month, once, yeah. a, once a year. Yeah. So, so it sounds like it was, the, the area was actually relatively good. It's just that this was completely mismanaged and gotten away. And you kind of turned around and also you were starting to build a, a sense of community in this place. That's right. That's yeah. right. And also buying the problem property was easy because I could uh, offer everyone cash for keys and um, get rid of that problem. It's not easy to do unless you buy the problem <laughs> and then you can fix it. And like one of my mentors said, if you fix a big problem, then there's a financial benefit to fixing that problem. You just have to capture, you have to position yourself to capture the financial benefit of fixing a problem. Now, you could argue that you got yourself a little bit into, I don't know, a rat hole in some in some sense and that you were way too hands-on with this, with this deal that, than you should have been. However, through that, it sounds like you became very resourceful to try to figure out how, not only how can you solve problems, but how can I increase the income of this property? And eventually, you determined that short-term rentals is kind of a strategy that was for you. Talk about how that evolved and why you think that a short-term rental strategy is uh, something that's really right for you and, and maybe for other people as well. Well, as an engineer, I oversee bridge construction, large construction projects, large uh, federal projects multi-million dollars. And oftentimes I was on a project for four to six, eight months at a time away from home or commuting back and forth. So I needed these extended stays. Mm. I knew being in these hotels was just driving me crazy. If there's any opportunity to get out of them, I would. So I knew there's tons of engineers, project managers, people building a Target store that are in town for you know six weeks, 
could possibly be in there for a month and a half. And the goal is when you're on assignment, you're trying to pocket as much tax-free housing allowance as you can. So the, the numbers work. I'm like, people want an alternative where they can pocket their housing allowance and I can give them something better and what they want, their own privacy and safety. I can do that now. And at the same time, on a net income basis, I could go eight and 10 times what my net income would be as a traditional landlord. That was my takeaway from interviewing Tim Hubbard, where he took this 12-unit apartment building in Memphis and he turned it into an Airbnb, where Uh he took the average rent from $600 to like $2,200 a month. Right. And I'm sure you looked at the Airbnb model, which is a very short-term stay, one, two, three nights. But you're talking about kind of an extended stay model where people can stay there for one, potentially several months. Is that right? That's that's right. At that threshold of one month, you take um, someone who would be called a transient if they're less than 30 days and they have to pay that hotel tax and all that stuff. As soon as you go over 30 days, you don't have to pay that anymore. Hmm. And all of a sudden you become a tenant and it becomes landlord tenant laws. And your insurance is your landlord landlord insurance covers it now. You're not doing a business anymore. You're Schedule E on federal. You're not Schedule C business anymore. And there's just a tremendous amount of a benefits you get, but you're still competing against people who are charging as if they have to pay lodging tax so that you can create a better benefit for your client. And it just becomes a slam dunk as soon as you move over 30 days. So, And also the short-term stay laws, that's the biggest risk factor in most people's minds for Airbnb type rentals is that you're subject to these short-term laws that are constantly changing. You're saying above 30 days, you're exempt from that because now you're subject to standard uh, landlord-tenant laws. So that's pretty cool. I, I like that a lot. So how did you go about kind of testing or executing on a strategy? I did an experiment. I started calling this this apartment building my my laboratory. And I did an experiment. Which one? Where I, the one you bought or, or, or someone? Another? The one I bought, this eight unit one. Oh, okay. So the neighborhood improvement thing, I wrote a, a action plan and map and turned that into a book called um, Building Wealth with Inner City Rentals. Building so Wealth with Inner City Rentals. Where, where can people find that book? That's yeah. on Amazon. Okay, great. Put that yeah, in the show so notes. All the details, all the things you do so that you can buy more rentals when the neighborhood is cheap. That's the goal because you, then you can exercise a plan. And from there, when the neighborhood got safe, I could do short-term rentals. So I started when Airbnb in 2015 came out with a, a business travel category. And I knew all about that because that's where I was living. You know, I didn't want to carry people's luggage and drop off cookies that a lot of people who are short-term rental hosts do. I didn't want to do that at all. So when this 2015 came in, I set aside my two-bit, one-bath unit of my eightplex and start off with doing short stays and doing three to four of them a month. And that was really good. But I was, you remember school after you finished finals, you were just worn out. You may have done an excellent job on your studying and excellent job on the test, but you're just fried out. That's the way I felt. So I started going for one month stays longer stays. And then I discovered all these benefits when I looked at the net income. I was like, the net income is about the same because I don't have to pay extra insurance. I don't have to deal with all the paperwork from the city. I don't have to deal with transient taxes anymore. It was great. And And income is more consistent too. It's more consistent. Less work. And and the same net, nearly the same net. It was within the standard of deviation. It was nearly the same. But personally, the tax on me was so much lighter 
as I started optimizing everything for longer period of stays, longer term stays, I started getting, I started getting longer term stays. And that's how I got to three and seven month stays. And those are just a pleasure. And I mean, it turns out that these seven month stays, especially when you pay yourself for your time, these seven month stays of furnished rentals is more profitable than doing these frequent stays per month. So I got to ask because Airbnb typically works best for uh, where places where people want to be and tend to be a little bit nicer areas, right? Why is this working in an area that is maybe not as nice, or maybe it's it really, yeah. maybe I'm I have it wrong in my mind. Maybe it is actually yeah. nice by this point. But what, in other words, what kind of property, what kind of area does this work for best? Okay, that's a great, great question. So I want to expand things a little bit before I answer that. I don't compete. My person I compete against is not Airbnb. It is Extended Stay America. That is my sole focus. I compete against Residence Inn by Marriott and Extended Stay America. That's the only thing in my mind. If they're physically in town, then and I, and I can provide something better than them, which I can, my goal is to take their customer base from them. So the question of Airbnb is my plan C, is my third safety net. If my other, if I can't get someone from the Extended Stay America, then I'll go and I'll list on Airbnb. Okay. Now, if there is an extended stay in your neighborhood within a few mile radius, then your neighborhood qualifies. That makes sense. It costs $22 million at least to come up with these extended stay hotels for about 100 111 rooms is $22 million national average. And these extended stays typically have 200, 300 rooms in them. And all you have to do is take one of their clients from them. Yeah. And also, they won't even build it if they haven't done the modeling to show that 18 days on average, that's what it extended stay. They say 18 days on average is viable, then we'll sink down these $22 million. And that means there's a lot of stays, for that to be the average, there's a lot of stays that are longer than 30 days in their model. That's great. That simplifies it. You don't, you don't have to spend millions doing demographic analysis. You look and see where they are because Dave spent the money. It was almost like when we were, were doing restaurants, we just went, we knew we wanted to be, in the, if, if there was a, a Panera in the market, for example, we knew yeah. that was a market for us. Like, and I have to do a lot of analysis. So that narrows it down. So that's cool. That narrows it down real so, quick. Now still though, you still have to provide housing that then uh, is then equal to or presumably better than. So you can't be like right. a class C, class D type housing. It has to be relatively nice, has to be furnished. Talk about the finishes or typically what kind of housing you have to provide to compete effectively? Okay, let me back up a wee bit. Everyone knows in, in doing hotels, there's Motel 6 has a market. Yeah, okay? sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And yeah, same thing with the Ritz. Carlton has a market. So there's a stratum of luxury that you need to hit, but you just need to know who you're going after and furnish it appropriately because there's lots of, say, iron workers who are on an extended project, a bridge project, that have to stay for three to four months. They're perfectly happy and maybe even more comfortable in a class C neighborhood from what they're used to. So that's a false belief. I kind of wanted to squash that. To answer your question, furnishings, you need to know who your target is. If it's a medical student that has a bunch of loans, they just want hot Wi-Fi and a comfortable bid. That's really it. If you put more money into it, that's just taken from your profit. If you're going after a nurse, they want, uh, say, a traveling healthcare professional 
that's working night shift in the emergency room. Okay, if that's your market, then you need blackout curtains, a good coffee maker, comfortable bed, and a big TV with Netflix. That's what they're looking for. If you put more into it, it's going to eat away at your profit and, and it's not going to make it such a slam dunk, you know? So you furnish these things for your target. Fascinating. So you have to go, you have really have to know what I call your avatar. Who is your person, your customer you're going after? Now, does this vary by from property to property, by market to market? Or That's right. it does. Okay. So how do you figure out who your customer is? Well, one of the, one of the ways I, I have about 12 ways, but let me share one of them. The easiest thing to do is to start on Airbnb, which has the market reach and see who comes to town. You know, you change your headline, you go after different, your dog whistling to different categories. Mm-hmm. You find out who goes. And that's what most Airbnb hosts, they stop at that. They get someone on Airbnb and they'll stay on Airbnb instead of going and reaching out to that business that brought someone to town. There may be a, a training for new employees in, in your town where they're bringing people in town for every five weeks, they have a new class. But if you don't go out and reach those folks, you can't build that relationship. Let me get this straight. So you, you list on Airbnb to attract someone. Are you and then are you listing short-term rentals two, three days at this point? Or are you listing one 30, 30 plus days? I always recommend people start off with these short stays and learn and then start expanding it because you need reviews just like when you're going, because it's online marketing. Just like when you go to Amazon, you're going to see if you need a widget, if they have any stars. Okay. So that's the first part of online marketing. You need those things. But then when you have them, then I call it breadcrumbs. You want to follow the breadcrumb trails back to the local customers, Mm -hmm. the local companies. And it's a super easy value proposition because they want to do business with local people. They want a savings and they want to be able to show that savings to their boss. Getting people to leave their computers is, is, um, is tough. I always like to say Airbnb is a one planet in the solar system. It has a strong gravitational pull to it, but it's just one planet. There's a whole, there's a whole galaxy of opportunity that um, myself and my, and my clients, my student clients, there's enough opportunity for everybody. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is you list these things, short-term Airbnb to attract people, uh, get some five-star reviews, and then you reach out to them and you kind of get to know them a little better. And then you follow the breadcrumb to their employer, possibly talk to them to see if there's any kind of patterns and if you can sense some kind of demand. And once you get that, then now you can provide or you can furnish the apartment to match that, that customer base. And then how do you stay up on that? Because sometimes I'm sure it could change, right? Something that worked for six months and maybe those training classes, you know, they stopped providing those. And so how do you you just repeat that process on an ongoing basis to figure out where your customers are? Yeah. So there's going to be for that pool, let's talk about six categories. You have, of course, you, well, seven. Of course, you have vacation travel, and then you have medical travel as its own category. You got military travel, and you got student housing. You have um, insurance housing, okay? And then you have temp housing. So you can pivot between all those different categories if one of those categories dry up. All of them need a furnished rental. So as soon as you have a furnished rental, you can go into all these different categories and, and use different strategies in there because, um, for example, military housing is fairly recession-proof. Same thing with insurance housing and same thing with 
I would say medical housing as well. So you can play in those categories, bounce between all those different categories. So I don't sit on a vacancy. I'm always proactively preventing vacancies. That's why I don't don't have vacancies. Is this something that you can outsource to management to, or is it something that if you're going to do this, you have to be a little bit more hands-on? You can outsource the ongoing fees of it and the relationship maintenance of it, but you know your market the best and they need to see a face um, to do this. And again, I don't go, I don't need a whole bunch of these. Mm. <laughs> I don't, I'm not running around on skinny margins. I just need a handful of them. That's all I, all I need. And, and with the strategy of knowing how to pick up a different market. And why do you only need a handful of them? Because we sometimes talk about, hey, you got to get 100 units. Uh, why do you only need a small number of them? It's because my, my income off per unit is so huge. Oftentimes, if, uh, for example, this eight unit place, to start off with my rent was $400 a month in this um, neighborhood. That's where I start off. Now, they're $1,800 a month. So one of them covers the cost of my mortgage and all, all that stuff. The rest of them take care of my family. So I don't, need, I don't need a whole bunch of them. And if, for example, there's a strategy of uh, rental arbitrage where people uh, may rent a, one of your units, Michael, and then they convert it into a short-term corporate housing, okay? So they pay you each month, but they're making about twice or maybe three times more than they're paying you. The difference is, is that you are stuck with the maintenance of the property. And like we talked about before, maintenance was the thing that was wiping me out. So taking care of that, having funds for that, allowed me to have more income that I can actually improve my life with. So that's one of the benefits that you don't need. You don't, this, the calculus isn't the same as if you're traditional landlording because of the maintenance, the real maintenance of the property is easier to cover that. The ratio is different. So what's the best kind of real estate to accommodate the strategy? I mean, clearly, you could, this is something you could do probably one townhouse, one house at a time. And you, you tested it first with an eight units. Like if you had a magic wand, what would be the ideal piece of real estate that you would buy? If you were my, you were my brother-in-law, it would be right next to your business so that you can feed your customers to me or the people that you're bringing into town. So it's all about relationships and it's all about location that you can provide. And of course, um, the financing. That was a vague answer because every property has its highest best use and it has a, a short-term rental opportunity for it. It might be different. One house may be perfect for military housing and the other one might be perfect for a, um, a business, a project manager, you know, one bedroom project manager who's coming into town to build a bridge. So everyone has their own opportunities. It's, it's all about that margin. You know, everything is relative to what the market rent is for, for a regular landlord. If I was in a class A neighborhood and their rent as a landlord was comparable to the extended stay rent, then it's not going to work there. Okay. So I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to use this business model there because it has to be a margin above what a traditional landlord can earn. Because you don't, you don't want, there is extra work. You don't want to do that extra work unless there's going to be more fruit, you know? You don't want to. So that's the most important thing related to the property. I've done it with three-bed, two-bath houses out in the county of Sacramento. And that was great for baby boomers who, are, who sold their house in San Francisco area. 
and they're taking all their money and moving to a the foothills. So they just need a place to park. So I didn't know that was going to be so lucrative. The margin on that one is about $1,200 yeah, a month. And I, and I simply do a rental arbitrage strategy on that. I pay the landlord $1,500 and I'm capturing $1,200 myself. By the medical center, there's a cancer research center where my eight-unit apartment is. I just have one person coming in town, a lot of travel nurses in town for three to six months. They simply want a one-bedroom place that's close to work, close to their work. So it's all over the place. There's no one real answer. There's those six categories, like I told you. Each property, you got to evaluate it according to the six categories and also how much margin you can make above what a traditional landlord can do. So you use some additional resources for this, uh, and, and I will mention that in a second, because it is very interesting, especially when you have a small multi-family unit that you've converted, essentially, and that's really, really interesting to me. What's, what's the one thing uh, that you want people to remember, key takeaway from, from this call? The one thing would be that if you have a multifamily, then one of those units should be a short-term rental. There's money on the table that you're not going to find unless you furnish a rental, at least one. And, and explore that market. And I think that puts you in a safer position and it changes everything for you if you do that. It's one of those things where it's a conversation to have with some of our property managers. Hey, do you want to try some of this stuff? And I, I remember it was a property we looked at in El Paso recently and they had, I would say about 40% of their units they rented furnished. That that was part of their, and because it, it was a heavy military apartment buildings and that's where they made a significant amount in the, in the furnishing and renting out the furniture. And they've adapted in this way. So it's it's definitely, you know, sometimes you just get into and your property manager is just cookie cutter. They just kind of do whatever they've always done. But what are we doing like you did? How can we become more resourceful? And this might be a great thing to, to try. So I might have a conversation with our property managers going, hey, just take a few of these, furnish them and see what the market will bear. You have some additional uh, resources for people who want to know more about applying short-term rental strategy to multifamily real estate. Uh, what's the best place uh, for people to find that? My new site is called extendedstaylandlord.com and it has a, a six-step pathway to help people who are trying to get into extended stays, go beyond Airbnb and get into extended stays. That's fantastic. And uh, we're going to put that in the show notes as well so that people will have a chance to find that. That'll be themichaelblank.com forward slash session 178 will be the show notes. So Al, thank you so much for being here on the show and sharing this really interesting strategy with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It wasn't that interesting. And I spoke to Al a few weeks ago. I was like, man, this is so interesting. I always love new ideas and I want to bring them on the show and share it with you. So check out his resources he has on this extended uh, stay idea as applied to multifamily. Ladinglandlord.com is one and extendedstaylandlord.com is the uh, the other. And again, this is all in the show notes at themichaelblank.com forward slash session 177. It's the show notes for the show, all right? Also, I interviewed Tim Hubbard a little while ago at uh, episode 111. That's themichaelblank.com forward slash session 111, where he applied the Airbnb strategy to a 12-unit in Memphis. And it was fascinating because he literally quadrupled times four or five the income of those units beforehand. So it is really, really interesting. So something worth looking into. And it's all about the strategy, really. And it's it may be right for you. And uh, Al can provide some additional resources if that's interesting. Speaking of resources, right? If you haven't done your first deal yet, 
one thing that might help you is is mentoring. Again, it's not one of those things that's for everyone. You have to be coachable and certainly there's an investment involved, but it's really three things that you need to be successful, right? You need to have deal flow. Uh, you need to have access to funds and you got a solid team and track record that you need. And that's something I'm really excited about our mentoring program is that we help you accelerate all three of those. So if that's something that you think might benefit you, check us out at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor and schedule a free strategy session with us to see if it's right for you. All right, guys, hope you found that useful. Catch you guys next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.